Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Calendar here. Hope you had a great weekend outside of the three-hour window. Well, really just like hour and a half window where the Panthers were playing. I mean, they were on the field for a lot longer than that, but yeah. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Email is Pete at the thepetecalendarshow.com. On Twitter, at Pete Callender, And that's K-A-L-I-N-E-R. So uh, let me start with a story out of uh, Indianapolis. The IMPD, which I assume stands for Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department, their officers arrested a woman who they labeled a terrorist after she drove her car into a building called the Israelite School of Universal and Practical Knowledge. 34-year-old Ruba I think is how she pronounces that. She was arrested on a preliminary charge of criminal recklessness. Officers said that I don't know how to pronounce that. It's a, well, how would you pronounce this? A-L-A, wait, A-L-M-A. All right, so Alma, and then G-H-T-H-E-H. G-H-T-H-E-H. Alma I'm just going to call her Ruba, which in its singular fashion, a single Ruba would be a Ruba, also known as a place in the Caribbean. Ruba, sorry, Ruba backed her car into the building while several adults and children were inside the Israelite School of Universal and Practical Knowledge. She told officers she was watching news coverage of the Israel-Hamas war on television and decided to plan an attack on the building because she was offended by the, quote, Hebrew-Israelite symbol on the front of the building. Note, she says she decided to plan the attack. I don't know. It it seems like she did not go any further than deciding to plan the attack because this attack did not seem very well planned at all. It consisted of her basically driving her car around the building a few times and then throwing her car into reverse and backing into the building, which is, according to the video I saw, it looked like cinder block construction, which, yeah, it, it didn't. Yeah, the building won. The building won, as buildings tend to do uh, against vehicles. So the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department, the IMPD, said that she made reference to, quote, her people back in Palestine and told officers, quote, yes, I did it on purpose. In a statement released on Sunday night, the Jewish Federation of Greater Indianapolis said, quote, Safety and security for our community is of the utmost importance, and we are more secure and prepared than ever before. Although a Jewish facility was not targeted, 
Solely due to ironic misidentification, this is yet another reminder to maintain security protocols, remain vigilant of suspicious activity, and to report promptly to the appropriate authorities. Well, wait a minute. She she attacked a building called the Israelite School of Universal and Practical Knowledge because she said it had the, the Hebrew-Israelite symbol on the front of the building. But the the Jewish Federation of Greater Indianapolis says, not one of our buildings, not a Jewish building. So what's going on here? Anybody care to guess? <laughs> she attacked a building owned by the Black Hebrew Israelites. No. No, no. No, man. Hey, it could... Common mistake. Could happen to any terrorist. Ruba was interviewed by detectives and admitted to committing the, quote, hate crime during her courtesy phone call with a family member. <laughs> so, yeah, I want my one call. And she calls her family member where she acknowledges, oh, yeah, I totally committed this targeted hate crime. Although she targeted the wrong organization because these are these are the black Hebrew Israelites. And uh, remember the uh, do you remember Nicholas Sandman? Remember, he went to the pro-life march up in Washington, D.C. a couple years back during the Trump administration. And there were a bunch of uh, protesters all out at the Lincoln Memorial and all of the kids were gathering there to get back onto their school buses to go to Covington, back to Covington High School in uh, Kentucky, I believe. And uh, there were a whole bunch of these black Hebrew Israelites protesting there. Um, And then there was also uh, like, I guess, the indigenous peoples as well. And this is where the guy was banging his drum in the face of Nick Sandman. And uh, they took video and pictures. And then the mainstream media, uh, uh, you know, put all this, uh, put all the video out there and all the images and attacked him as a colonizer. And the the face, albeit a young face, but a, a, a face of of colonialization and, uh, you know, institutional racism because he was wearing the MAGA hat and he was kind of smiling at the guy because he wasn't really understanding what was going on, right? Well, that, that the indigenous man had, had also been subjected to the taunts of the black Hebrew Israelites who are like this radical sect and they're out on the streets preaching like this racist stuff all the time. Anybody in D.C. and uh, New York City, they, they've encountered these guys. They're like street preachers of the high, like of a really racisty kind, and uh, they consider themselves to be like the actual Jews. They say they're the lost tribe of Israel, and everybody else, they're all just race. They're they're, uh, they're white supremacist frauds. Not they're not really the Jews. We're really the Jews, but yeah, it's like a decades long fight that they've been having. They've been trying to go over to dare I say it, colonize in Israel, trying to get citizenship. And Israel's like, yeah, we have no record of you guys being Jewish. So if you want to be if you want to be a citizen, you can convert to Judaism. And they're like, oh no, <laughs> we're not converting to your your form of of Judaism. And so Israel's like, well, then you don't get to uh, get citizenship. You're not because you're not Jewish. You got to convert to Judaism. But they consider themselves to be the true Jews. Yes. So that black Hebrew Israelite crowd, and that's who the Palestinian attacked because she didn't know well very much. Also, just for future reference, um, yeah, ramming a, a concrete building with your vehicle. Not exactly, not exactly the, the best way to, uh, to send the message. You know, if you're trying to, you know, stand with your people and murder a bunch of children in a school, um, 
backing your car into their concrete building is not, that's not going to get you martyrdom, sister. Sorry. Hashtag not all Palestinians. Okay. Um, and now we have uh, Barack Obama, who appeared on a podcast uh, recording, and part of it has now uh, was released. And uh, in this podcast, he says uh, regarding the uh, Israel-Hamas uh, war that uh, I, I believe the quote is, there are many good people on both sides. I think that's what he <laughs> That's what he said. That is kind of, no, it is really, that is actually what he really kind of said. Like, yeah. I mean, not in those words specifically. He just did the sort of like negative rights, you know, that he's all about instead of the positive. Anyway, he says that uh, we, we, we're all complicit. We failed. You, me, like, I've never been to the Holy Land. I've never been to Israel. I like, I, I don't know anything about like their, uh, the intricacies of their politics and all that. Like, I, I but I'm I am to blame. Apparently, you are to blame too. Even if you have a completely different opinion of the situation than I do, that we are all complicit. As Jim Garrity noted, um, in his piece at the Morning Jolt at National Review, he says, "Anytime you see somebody insisting that no one's hands are clean or that everybody is to blame, there's a pretty good chance you're hearing from the person who actually is to blame." <laughs> It's like when somebody says it's not about the money, chances are it's about the money. Yeah. So when somebody, no, nobody's hands are clean. You I mean your hands aren't clean. You, the former president, you, the, the trash talker of Netanyahu, uh, you, the architect of the Iran deal that funded uh, uh, Iran and all of its terrorist proxies. You, your hands aren't clean. I got nothing. To, I got nothing to do with this. Hey, so real quick, hurricane season is here, and this is your reminder to check your emergency supplies. You should have a three-day supply of food, water, and medicines, minimum. And Carolina Readiness Supply can help you get started or expand your supply. Food, water purifiers, lighting, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies too, because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you can use for any kind of emergency. Whether you're an experienced prepper or you have no clue what you're doing, or maybe you're somewhere in between, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. In Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply, will you be ready when the lights go out? Former President Barack Obama has urged Americans to, quote, take in the whole truth when weighing Israel's war against Hamas, saying everybody is complicit to some degree in the conflict. You? Me? A little baby born like a minute ago in like flyover country someplace? That all, all of us, we are all complicit, I guess. He said... Nobody's hands are clean. What Hamas did was horrific, and there's no justification for it. And what is also true is that the occupation and what's happening to Palestinians is unbearable, said Obama, now 62 years old, explaining that the only way to solve the crisis was to accept those seemingly contradictory ideas. New York Post report by Alex Oliveira says, uh, has a quote from him as saying, and what is also true is that there is a history of the Jewish people that may be dismissed unless your grandparents or your great-grandparents or your uncle or your aunt or your cousin or your second cousin twice removed. I'm just kidding. He, he did say 
I mean, he did say grandparents, great-grandparents, uncle, or your aunt. He says, there's a history of the Jewish people that may be dismissed unless your grandparents or others tell you stories about the madness of anti-Semitism. And what is true is that there are people right now who are dying who have nothing to do with what Hamas did. We could go on for a while. Obama blamed social media for deepening divisions between both sides of the debate and being a place where people went to defend their own, quote, moral innocence. By the way, there's a reason why Obama is talking social media, I suspect. I'll get to that in a minute. He says, the problem with the social media, TikTok activism, and trying to debate this is you can't speak the truth. Well, I mean, I know that he can't speak the truth. I, I, I mean, I did learn that. That was just from his political career. You, you can pretend to speak the truth, and you could speak to one side of the truth, and in some cases you can try to maintain your moral innocence, but that won't solve the problem. If you want to solve the problem, then you have to take in the whole truth. And you have to admit nobody's hands are clean that all of us are complicit to some degree. And I would just tack on to that. Yeah, maybe especially the guy who gave Iran pallets of cash that they then funneled to their terrorist proxies. That guy might have a little bit more blood on his hands than, say, me, who you took my money and gave it to the terrorist funders. Actually, no, you didn't take my money. You 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 borrowed money from future generations to give to. No, Pete, see, it was actually Iran's money that was frozen and he just released it. Okay. Well, then I'm completely out of the equation altogether. So tell me again, how is it that I, 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 I never voted for Obama. I never voted for his cabinet people. I never vote for any of those, those fools that, that gave Iran all the money or freed up their money, gave it back to them, uh, you know, released it to them. Now, that was him and his foreign policy uh, uh, wizards of smart. That was, that was them, not me. I am not complicit in any of this. This reminds me almost, you know, Brett Winterbull on uh, weekdays here, 3 to 6, or sorry, 3 to 7 WBT. Um, he always talks about, you know, the system failed. That's what this sounds like. That's what this reads like. And Jim Garrity pointing out, while life gives us, gives us lots of problems for which there's lots of blame to go around, poverty, violent crime, schools that fail to educate kids, blah, blah, blah. In every circumstance, some people are, in fact, more to blame than others. The easiest way to ensure that no one is actually held responsible for what happened is to insist that everyone is to blame. Claiming it's everybody's fault is just a way of ensuring the consequences will be indistinguishable from the conclusion that it's nobody's fault. That's what Obama is doing. Oh, oh, I mean, come on. Like, we're all complicit here. And now, what does that mean? He gets to skate on any culpability. He's also pretending that he's above the fray on all of this, which he most definitely is not. So the former president did acknowledge during this Pod Save America, that's the name of the, uh, the podcast that's run by a couple of his former uh, hacks or flax or flunkies, sycophants, people that worked in his administration, and, uh, yeah, so they started a podcast. They call it Pod Save America because, you know, arrogance. But um, Obama noted that he was not excused from shouldering blame for the conflict, explaining that 
he'd been asking himself, was there something else I could have done during his presidency to avoid the bloodshed that was unleashed in October? Well, I mean, like, besides not doing the Iran deal and besides not meddling in the Israeli election? I mean, like that? I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. We may never know the answer to this. He urged Americans not to, quote, confine ourselves to outrage, but to listen to opposing viewpoints. Now, look, I agree with that, but this is classic B.O., classic B.O., where he pretends that he's above the fray. He pretends that he's, he's, the, he's the professor, and he's just, he's just sitting around listening to the intellectual conversations about these things and trying to, trying to have a, a thorough discussion, a collaborative discourse, right? as if he wasn't the guy who was the architect of the Iran deal, who tried to empower Iran as a, quote, counterweight in the Middle East. And by the way, he wrote about this in his memoir. If you read volume one of his post-presidency memoir, you'll find bristling contempt for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. In Obama's eyes, Israel was more powerful than its foes, And so it was obligated to begin the peace process by making unilateral concessions. Here's the passage that Jim Garrity quotes at National Review. We knew that Netanyahu would probably resist the idea of a freeze on the settlements. Netanyahu would complain that the good faith gesture we'd be asking from the Palestinians in return, namely that Abbas and the Palestinian Authority take concrete steps to end incitements to violence inside the West Bank was a great deal harder to measure. Right? That's what Netanyahu was arguing, that like you're asking us to stop settlements in the West Bank, people moving to the West Bank, these, quote, settlers, right, that are Israelis that are going into this West Bank area. That is, like, that's, that's Palestinian Authority-controlled area, right? That's, But it's the West Bank of the Jordan River, and so... Like, you could argue it's also Israel, but whatever. So you've got the uh, the Israelis being asked to stop all the settlements. And remember, the Israelis had already pulled out all of their people from the Gaza Strip and turned that all over to Hamas, basically, or to the Palestinians who then elected Hamas. So they, they, they uprooted all their people. They tore down the buildings and stuff. They left everything there. That was all up to the Palestinians. And... That's what they were being asked to do in the West Bank. No more settlements. And what do you get in exchange for that? Well, um, you got to stop telling people to kill all the Jews. Okay, well, what's the measurement for that? What's the metric? How do we know that that's actually happening? Back to Obama's memoir. Given the asymmetry in power... Between Israel and the Palestinians, there wasn't much, after all, that Abbas could give the Israelis that the Israelis couldn't already take on their own. I thought it was reasonable to ask the stronger party to take a bigger first step in the direction of peace. Yeah, how about this? How about no more rocket attacks? How about that? No more rocket attacks from the West Bank. How about that? No more, no more terrorism from Palestinian leaders. Palestinian people, Palestinian Authority, Hamas, whatever. No more 
terrorism. And and if there's terrorism that's coming from inside the West Bank, we trace it back to you guys, then deals off, right? But this has been the cycle forever, right? This has been, well, for 70 years. Jim Garrity notes that the state of Israel is, on paper, more powerful than Hamas. But as we saw last month, that does not mean that Hamas can't spill a lot of Israeli blood. And when you put Hamas alongside Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah in Lebanon and throw in the full backing of the theocratic regime in Iran, which wants to be a nuclear-armed state, which Obama was trying to help them become while telling us all that it's totally not what's going to happen, and add in Syria, as well as the populations of Arab states that loathe Israel as well, then Israel suddenly doesn't seem so much more powerful than its enemies. And a unilateral concession, more land for promises that will probably be broken, doesn't look like such a reasonable request at all. And for the entirety of Obama's presidency, he kept insisting to Benjamin Netanyahu that he understood Israel and its long-term interests better than Bibi did. And then remember, he tried to get him, uh, he tried to uh, get him defeated in an election as well. All right. So, I mentioned earlier that Obama mentions the social media having this really deleterious effect on the on the conversation about like how many Jews should be allowed to live. Right. So, um, I suspect that this is connected to the leaking of the story. Last week, late last week, that Obama was advising Joe Biden on his big artificial intelligence executive order, the policy, whatever. Like he he rolled this out and put um, like one of the very first uh, attempts at AI. I mean, it's a miserable failure. But uh, uh, Kamala Harris, 1.0, she's going to be running point on the AI stuff which inspires confidence for me. I don't know about you, but after having fixed the, uh, the border crisis, she does seem uniquely positioned to, uh, to fix AI and make sure that we've got the proper boundaries there. Um, so I suspect that the, the leaking of that story that Obama was behind Joe's AI announcement, I think this is meant to placate people that are concerned. People that are concerned about Joe Biden winning in November 24. And so this was the message that, guys, Joe is just the husk. Right? He's this empty shell. It's actually Obama calling the shots. I don't know if all of that's true, and I don't know if it's on every single issue. I know, you know, all the people that are surrounding Joe Biden, like a large portion of them are Obama holdovers as well. They're all connected to the previous president, too. So it's not surprising. But I think this is communicating the message to the base, to people that are worried that Joe Biden keeps falling upstairs, falling downstairs, you know, falling off of bicycles, uh, gets slurry and hair sniffy. You know, I think they're just they're worried that he's going to lose to Trump. And so and they're worried about with the rise of the this uh, pro-Palestinian uh, uh uh, sentiment inside the Democrat base, like this is your this is your hard left base, and they are concerned that Joe is not sufficiently pro-Palestinian. They want Joe to go wobbly on Israel. Which, by the way, did you know America is the second largest funder of the Palestinians? Did you know that? 
The U.S. is the second largest source of aid to the Palestinians. Meanwhile, you got Hezbollah that says they're, that America is going to pay. America is going to pay for what Israel does. So I suspect this is messaging. Joe Biden is actually Barack Obama's third term. He's just a husk that Obama is using. And don't worry, we're actually, we're down with Palestine. Uh, I came across a piece a a couple of days ago um, by uh, Maurice Iserman, teaches history at Hamilton College, founding member of the Democratic Socialists of America, the author of an upcoming book called Reds, The Tragedy of American Communism. Mm. Um, This was originally published by The Nation about two weeks ago. And uh, he says he's been involved in the uh, in socialist uh, activities for 41 years uh, with the DSA. Before that, he was with the Students for a Democratic Society (SDS). Um, he said, "I left to protest the D- I left to protest DSA leadership's politically and morally bankrupt response to the horrific Hamas attack um, that took the lives of 11, uh, 1,400 people, mostly civilians, and saw more than 200 hostages carried off to Gaza. Both groups of victims, including children and infants." One thing a lifetime of studying the history of American radicalism suggests to me is that, as a rule, there are rarely second acts in the lives of organizations captured by left sectarian entryists. I had never heard this word before, entryists. What does he mean by that? In left-wing parlance, the term entryist refers to tightly organized groups who, without sharing the beliefs of a larger and more loosely organized body, join the body, and then proceed to either wreck the body or capture the body for ends, for goals, that are at odds with the spirit and purpose of the original members of the larger body, right? So uh, you get this little insurgent group that, that gets in and takes over or destroys it. Without descending too deeply into the weeds of sectarian history, entryism has been a recurring phenomenon on the American left since the 1930s, he says. This is a very lengthy piece. I'm just giving you the, uh, the highlights. He talks about in the beginning of the 21st century, DSA had a growth spurt, very similar to what the SDS had back in the 60s, bringing it belatedly to national political relevance. Tens of thousands of eager young recruits were energized by Bernie Sanders, Democratic Socialist in 2016, although Sanders was not a member of the DSA, but also the election of a couple of members to Congress. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, Jamal False Alarm Bowman, right? Unlike my generation, he says, for whom the overriding issue of the late 60s was opposition to the war in Vietnam, most of DSA's new members were attracted to the organization by its proposals for substantial, vital, and above all, realizable domestic reforms. Things like Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, student debt relief, tenants' rights, etc., etc. As a result, DSA's membership expanded from 6,000 to about 90,000 plus, while dropping the average age of members from like 60-something down to 20-something. So what is this? You, these are entryists, all of these new arrivals. These young energetic recruits proved remarkably politically savvy and successful in electoral politics 
elevating four members to Congress. All well and good, except for the return of the entryists. Suddenly, in the eyes of revolutionary purists in a host of small competing sects, DSA was no longer to be sneered at as just a reformist swamp. Why rob banks? Willie Sutton famously asked, because that's where the money is. Right? So you have all of these unknown numbers, hundreds, perhaps more, started joining in 2016. Some of them former members of a defunct Marxist-Leninist group. Others, in violation of DSA bylaws, still belonging to and carrying out agendas of other groups. They proceed to fight amongst each other. They then split and recombine under various banners like Red Star, Marxist Unity Group, and even the Communist Caucus. But they remain united in one overarching shared aim to take a well-meaning, not particularly well-organized, and essentially social democratic organization still committed in practice to the original DSA vision of creating the left wing of the possible, and they reinvented it into the mass vanguard party of the proletariat that somehow they had never been able to pull off while operating under their own banners. Right? So while they're just this little group, they can't get any traction. So they took over a bigger group, the DSA. 